For many solicitors, property transactions form a large part of legal practice, but they are not always straightforward and often present a unique set of risks that every solicitor should be aware of. In this program, Jen McMillan, Legal Practice Manager at LawCover and Accredited Specialist in Wills and Estates, and Richard Harvey, Chair of the Law Society's Property Law Committee and Accredited Specialist in Property Law, discuss the traps and pitfalls when taking instructions from attorneys in relation to property transactions, issues around verification of identity, and the practical steps you can take to minimise these risks in your practice. Welcome, Richard. Thanks for joining us today. A pleasure, Jen. Thanks for having me. So what we're interested in talking about today is some of the issues that come up for practitioners who are dealing in property transactions. And the first point that we want to address is this um, issue of verification of identity, which I'd have to admit is not something that even existed when I first started doing conveyancing in practice. Um, So where does the obligation to verify identity come from? The... Under the new, under the conveyancing rules now, which bring into effect the um, the part- model participation rules, which have come in under the the electronic national conveyancing legislation, there's now a statutory obligation to perform verification of identity, and also to check the right of the client to deal with the real estate. I suppose that was always the case that at common law you had an obligation to identify your client. It's just that now that we're moving into this electronic uh, settlement and electronic conveyancing space, it's become essential that there be true identification or really high level, if you like, identification of the client. So it, it's it's been brought in, the obligation to verify identity has been brought in by the model participation rules and also by the, the conveyancing rules because even if the matter is not an electronic settlement, even if you're still doing a paper transaction, the conveyancing rules require you to perform verification of identity and to to provide satisfy yourself that the client has the authority to deal with the title. Okay. One issue that seems to come up from time to time is that people want to be able to verify identity using an electronic medium like Skype to um, to confirm that the person is who they say they are. Um, what's the position with that? Yeah, <clears throat> it's interesting because there's also now commercial providers out there advertising that they'll do verification of identity um, by using Skype or FaceTime, those sorts of uh, those sorts of um, technologies. So look, it, it's actually a little bit complex, and people do get confused about verification of identity. There's there is what they call the safe harbour, and that is under the rules, if you do a face-to-face in-person interview with somebody and then you inspect their identification documents and you comply with Schedule what's Schedule 8 to the, the model participation rules, basically meaning if someone's got a passport that's not more than two years old or a current and a current driver licence and they look like the people who are in the photos, <laughs> which, <clears throat> which help us out, they obviously would appear to be the people, then that's called the safe harbour or the... Um, the, the standard, the, the really, standard. isn't it? Yeah. And so the only problem with that is that the guidance notes, and I, I commend to everybody that when dealing with these things, they look at the participation rules but also the RNEC guidance notes, they say that use of uh, video technology like Skype or FaceTime 
would not constitute a face-to-face in-person interview, nor does it allow the person to actually inspect the original documents because of if you're doing it on screen... it doesn't, yeah. You just can't see it. So there may be some issues about... So holding it up to the to the camera on their computer, uh, holding up a driver's licence to the camera on their computer really doesn't cut it, does it? It doesn't cut it to provide you with the safe harbour, with the the, right. the the verification identity standard. But, of course, you don't have to use the verification identity standard. That's the safe harbour. That's what is recommended to be used wherever possible. But the reality is it may not be practical to do it. Right. The actual obligation is not to do a safe harbour standard of verification identity. It's to take reasonable steps to identify your client. Now, nowhere is there really a massively great helpful description of what is or what are reasonable steps. As practitioners, you just have to think, right, what is something which if I was ever audited and called upon to say, how did I identify the client? I had something which is likely, mm-hmm. that is reasonable, that would pass the, the, the would pass. The sniff, t- the sniff test, really. Test, that's, right, yeah. <laughs> that's it. So you don't have to. Like if you're acting for your mum, you can truly say, well, I've known her all my life. <laughs> yes. You don't need to identify yeah. and do it. And that's where... If you, as, as, a, as a subscriber, the, the, the lawyer, if you wanted to use the Skype-type technology, you wouldn't be getting safe harbour. But if you are willing to say, well, I think that's reasonable steps because you have some yeah. other way perhaps of identifying the people at the end of the, uh, mm. of, of the, the camera, then that might be sufficient. But it's, it's upon each individual practitioner yeah. to stop so- and think, and is there is a risk involved there, isn't isn't there? So if if you had a client that you'd never been, met before, they weren't prepared to come into your office, and they were wanting you to verify their identity remotely, and you didn't have any other way of knowing who they were, would your radars be up? Yes, I'd run away. Right, <laughs> run away. This is too dangerous okay. because that, that it can't be reasonable steps where you don't actually have them physically with you, and you just and you don't right. know who they are, and there's no other. Yeah. Identifying yeah. evidence. Yeah. And I, I think um, practitioners get themselves in trouble all the time by trying to bend over backwards to accommodate clients and mm. that's when you find yourself in hot water quite often. Yeah. Um, the other thing I suppose yeah. we should say people need to appreciate is that if you breach the conveyancing rules and the conveyancing rules say whether it be paper or electronic, you must verify the identity of the client and then... Um, also establish their right to deal with the property. If you don't do that and then audits, which everyone will be audited by the Registrar General's office eventually, mm. uh, if, if you get audited and you can't um, show that you have complied with the rules, then the Registrar then the Registrar General can eventually cut you off from acting in conveyancing matters. And that could have some really serious consequences um, for your bottom line but also for any clients that you've got ongoing at that time. Absolutely. Yeah. And and also just ignoring the conveyancing rules because it suits you is also arguably professional misconduct. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't bear thinking about really, no, does it? Just yeah. don't do it. <laughs> okay. Um, I want to turn the conversation around to talking about the situation where you might take instructions from an attorney who wants to transfer or sell property that's held by the principal. Um, And if we put ourselves in the chair of a solicitor who's got an attorney walking in the door and saying, look, um, this property needs to be sold or I intend to transfer this property, what are the things that should be running through your mind? Right, well, I think the 
a lot of things. I suppose the very first question is, is who is your client? And um, and uh, there's that recent case of McPhee and Riley. Yeah. yeah, actually I might just um, describe that case in brief. Um, this was a case where Mr and Mrs Riley um, had a farming partnership together. They had four daughters and one son and the farm was um, was operated on two properties. One property was owned by mum and one property was owned by dad. Mum had transferred the property that was in her name to the son and then sometime later she goes and sees a solicitor. She holds a power of attorney, mm. one of those old Conveyancing Act powers of attorney for her husband. He has dementia and has lost capacity to deal with the property personally. And she says to the solicitor, um, we'd always agreed that this property was going to be transferred to our four daughters and so what I want you to do is to act on the transfer and we'll transfer it to the four daughters for no consideration. And I guess um, the real... There, there are a number of things here, but it seems to me that the first thing that should be running through a solicitor's mind in that situation is, who's my client here? Yeah. So um, when you're acting under instructions from an attorney to deal with property, your client really is the principal under the power of attorney, even if they're not in the room and not capable of giving you instructions. And knowing that that's the person who's your client... Um, should put you on the alert that that's the person in whose best interests you need to act. So um, what um, the wife was proposing to do here was transfer the property for no consideration to the four daughters. Um, And in this case of McPhee and Riley, the solicitor facilitated that transaction. And then after Frank died, um, the son commenced proceedings against his mother and the four daughters and also the solicitor who was involved, saying that that whole transaction was a fraud on the power of attorney. Um, And in hindsight, particularly with the benefit of the first instance judgment from Justice Lindsay and the Court of Appeal judgment, with hindsight we can actually sort of map out what the solicitor should have done in that situation. Um, the solicitor was held to have been negligent um, in that he breached his duty of care to the principal, the husband, um, in acting on the transfer without a critical examination of the wife's authority to effect that transfer. And I think that sort of brings us around to a discussion of you know, how do you know the extent of the authority that's given under mm. a power of attorney? Yeah, and, it's, and I think it, it, it's a really great example of, of things that as the solicitor for the attorney you need to take into account because we, we talked about verification of identity. That's just a given that mm. you'll need to identify that the attorney is who they say they are. But the, the other thing with all obligations is not just verifying the identity of your client, it's also determining their right to deal with the property. Mm. And this is a classic example of what right did the attorney have to deal with the principal's property in a, in a way which was contrary to the interests of the principal. Yeah, it was fundamentally giving away his biggest asset. Mm. Yeah. For nothing. For nothing, mm. yeah. And so that, I mean, that that's, a, that's just a classic example of that. So yeah. 
Um, and, and of course, you can, within a power of attorney, authorise your attorney to do things that might not be in your own best interests. But it needs to actually be spelled out in the form itself, the form of power of attorney, the extent to which you're authorising the conferral of benefits on third parties or on the attorney. So one of the many things you've got to do, I suppose, as the lawyer for the attorney is work out, is this transaction permitted under the power? Exactly. Separate to the issue of fraud on the power, which is the McPhee situation, you know, is is it? And, and as we know, in the modern form of enduring power of attorney, typically it talks about those things which can be done. And so you really must read the power of attorney very, very carefully to see that this mm-hmm. transaction is, is within scope. I think that's absolutely right. I think you need to... Um, you need to also be aware that within the current form of power of attorney, there are some prescribed. There's some prescribed wording about authorising the conferral of benefits mm. for particular purposes, specifically for reasonable living and medical expenses. And it would take an enormous stretch to say that the transfer of a property was for the purpose of reasonable living and medical expenses. I think um, that kind of broad brush. Um, conferral of benefits is very unlikely to be authorised under a power of attorney unless you've got specific wording in there that makes it abundantly clear that it is authorised. You just need to err on the side of caution with that. Um, And I guess before you even come to the question of whether what's being proposed is authorised, you need to look at the power of attorney and check whether it's actually valid and operative. And there can be all kinds of issues with powers of attorney. It may not have been properly executed. Um, You need to really check that um, the witness was a prescribed witness and has identified what category of prescribed witness they are. Um, But sometimes um, um, there, there are options in a power of attorney form in relation to when it will come into operation. And sometimes there might be a condition that needs to be satisfied before you can say that that power of attorney is operative. Mm. So I I suppose when you think about it in day-to-day practice, the the solicitor is trying to get everything to go ahead, but there may be times where the lawyer just has to say no. That's exactly right. I'm not going to act on this because I'm concerned it's beyond power. Either don't do it or find another attorney. I don't think you could write a, a... a long letter to the client saying you ought not to do this because yeah. if you know that they ought not to do it, then you also, as the solicitor, ought not to be involved in doing it. That's right. And that message comes through clear in the Court of Appeal judgment that the right thing for the solicitor to have done in those circumstances was to point out that what was being proposed was not authorised under the power of attorney and to decline to act. Mm. Yeah. Um, yes, I think... Um, With powers of attorney, um, there are lots of things that you need to um, consider when you're taking instructions for a transaction. One of those is that the power of attorney might have been revoked. (laughs) Um, And I guess you you can only... Revocation will only be effective if it's been communicated to the attorney. But you should be asking the attorney whether they've had any notice that the power of attorney's been revoked. Um, I don't know if you've got a view about this, but I know that the form doesn't actually contain a revocation provision. Um, And I think there's probably lots of people out there who've made 
power of attorney 15 years ago and another one 10 years ago and mm. another one five years ago and they're quite possibly all operative unless they've actually taken mm. the step of revoking. Yeah, that, that's always been my view, that the that previous powers of attorney that have not been revoked and, of course, it has to be revoked by deed yeah. and, uh, as you said, it has, the, the revocation has to be notified to the attorney. Mm. So it's um, it, it's just one of the those things that has to be checked. It's, it's a bit like also checking has the... Oh, do are the attorneys required to act jointly and or severally? Yes. And if they're required to act jointly, then it must be all of them. And yes. if it's joint and several, then you're yeah. fine. And, and so really every single part of the document needs to be looked at by the solicitor acting for the attorney on, on, on a, yeah. let's say, on any transactional land, typically yeah. a sale or a purchase. And where you've got jointly appointed attorneys, you really need instructions from both of them and you need to verify both their identities. Absolutely. Yeah. Actually, can I ask you the question? I've often wondered whether you also need to verify the identity of the principal hmm. in the power of attorney. It's look, uh, The answer to that is no, but. <laughs> no, but. <laughs> the... the, the, um, the um, the rules are clear that you have to identify the attorney and there's a general principle that you don't need to look behind the power of attorney, otherwise it would be totally, mm. all this would be unworkable, the whole system would become unworkable if you always had to be identifying the the actual donor and the principal. However, it's the, the notes, and as I said earlier, everyone should really be looking at the model participation rules guidance notes when you look at the issue of right to deal, the, the notes are saying, well, it may be that there are circumstances in which you ought to verify the identity of the principal. I mean, right. it could come down to simple things as if the person is John Smith, well, there's plenty of those just because you've got a certificate title that says John Smith, you might need more to identify that it is this John Smith. Yes. Things such as, well, the the John Smith who... that you're dealing with looks a certain age and the property was bought before they were born or before they were 18, you might then have doubts yeah, about what's yeah. there. So I think as a general rule, you're not required to do verification of identity of the donor, but then if there's any doubt about the transaction or, or it's things like the person's name is John Smith, I think it behoves the lawyer to actually look a little bit deeper and require the attorney to provide a bit more about the identity of the of the principal, not mm. so much the right to deal, but the identity. Yeah, and certainly, if you've got a bad feeling about a transaction and you're not um, completely certain as to whether this power of attorney that's being waived in front of you might have been forged, even. <clears throat> You know, one thing that you can hang your hat on is, well, you know, I need to satisfy myself about the right to deal and that's why I'm going to ask you more questions and seek some further information before I'm prepared to act on the transaction. Absolutely. Yeah. And another one is probably uh, relates to wills. If you're an executor under a will, I mean, it'd be pretty rare that there wasn't a power of sale, let alone what it says mm. in the Trustee Act, but the um, you really need to check that the convention transaction is contemplated by the will, that at least there's a power to do it because maybe yeah. there isn't. Maybe there's an express prohibition. Yes, that would be interesting or maybe it's maybe this particular property is subject to a trust and you need to inquire about what's um, what's gone on there before you can be comfortable about um, about going ahead with acting on the transaction. 
Yeah. One interesting case from a few years ago that I wouldn't mind mentioning is one that um, dealt with that situation where there was a condition um, that had to be met before the power of attorney would become operative. Um, and the case is power and power. And this was um, a case where the power of attorney said that this power of attorney shall only be used upon my treating medical practitioner certifying that I am no longer physically or mentally able to sign documents or look after my own affairs. Now, um, the um, the person was the person who was appointed as attorney was proposing to sell a property, and in fact, they did sell a property. But um, later on, there was a question about whether that property had been um, sold uh, by a duly authorised attorney. And it turns out when you looked at um, whether that condition had been satisfied, a letter had been obtained from the principal's treating medical practitioner. But what that letter said was, I'm, a, I'm the attending doctor for this lady who resides in a nursing home. After Over the last 12 months, we've noticed significant deterioration in her mental state and recent testing showed that she is suffering from significant dementia. She has reached the stage which I feel that she may not be capable of looking after her own affairs. Now, Richard, would you have expected that that would have satisfied that condition on the power of attorney? Well, I mean, looking at it, I think many of us would say, ah, oh, yes, this person's not in a position to, uh, to, to deal or doesn't have the capacity to deal with it, but mm. I rather suspect the court thought otherwise. Yeah, well, the court looked at the wording in the power of attorney and it said that a medical practitioner had to certify that um, she was no longer able to sign documents or look after her own affairs. But what the, what the letter did was say that um, the practitioner, the medical practitioner felt that she may not be capable of looking after her own affairs. So it wasn't framed in unequivocal enough language um, with the result that um, the court found that the attorney had no authority to act under the power of attorney to sell that property. Yeah. Not not a happy thing to discover after it's already passed title. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. I mean, it, it just also leads to the question about clear drafting in powers of attorney. If, True. if there's something which needs to be stated, let's be precise, not exactly. airy-fairy. I mean, I think wasn't they used the word may? Yes. May not have the capacity or yeah. we're not certifying that they definitely... That she does not have, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it's really unfortunate. And I think the fact that she had, she was suffering from significant dementia. I don't really think there's any doubt that she didn't have mm. capacity, but um, but it was the lack of a certificate doing exactly what was said in the power of attorney that caused the problem. So it's just a warning, really, for solicitors that you need to dot your eyes and cross your t's, and and if there is a condition, you need to satisfy yourself that that condition has been fulfilled. Um, and fulfilled to the letter, not just in spirit, as I think it was in um, in power and power. The last thing that I wanted to um, mention, and I guess this is in the context of solicitors finding themselves in the firing line a bit for in situations where um, it might be asserted that an attorney um, is perpetrating financial abuse of an older person. 
Um, and it just seems to me that any time you get yourself in front of an attorney who has just sold a property or is about, is about to sell a property, that that's an opportunity to remind them about what their obligations are in relation to keeping the property of the principal separate from their own property and only using it for the benefit of the principal under the power of attorney. Yes, it makes you wonder whether enough people point, enough lawyers point out to the attorneys when they're accepting their role to actually read those four or five yes. points yeah. above the acceptance about specifically keeping yeah. your assets separate. Yeah. That's right. And often um, the first opportunity a solicitor will have to talk to an attorney about what their obligations are will be when they're acting on under the power of attorney to do something that requires a solicitor because although the solicitor has to certify that they've explained the effect of the power of attorney to the donor, they don't actually have to witness the signature of the person accepting the power of attorney. And so grab your opportunities while you can. Make sure that... Um, that attorneys understand where their obligations are. And, and, and I suspect there's just a common law obligation to do that because, as you say, in the guardianship you have to have a lawyer sign the certificate that yes. the person had some idea of, of you know, what they understood were what they were doing, but not so with, with the power of attorney. But yeah. I think it's important just to point those, make people at least read and acknowledge those points before they accept their role. That's right. You certainly don't want people pointing the finger at the solicitor who was involved in the transaction and saying, well, why didn't you advise about that? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thanks very much, Richard. Really appreciate you coming to talk to us today. My pleasure. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for listening to Risk On Air by Law Cover. Join us for the next episode and subscribe to stay up to date.